Listener Production. A warning, this episode contains explicit language and descriptions of forced adoption. Throughout the process of finding out what happened to my mum, people would tell me their stories of their own experiences. Endless stories about their own mum, their aunts, their cousins or family friends, all with these stories about secret babies. But they were secondhand stories. Then Joe, mum's oldest and best friend, put me in contact with a woman. She was open to sharing her first-hand experience. Okay, um, and you'll have to forgive me because this is, this, I don't, um, obviously, what happened um, has been very, very, very deep for 40 years for me. And being in that space again is difficult because I have to, I see this as, when I say the crazy circle, I'm not being disparaging, but I have to jump in, pull myself together, which I'm not doing very well at the moment. This is Di Sheehan. It became obvious as soon as I sat down to interview Di that her story is still very raw. This is an important story, not just for me as an individual, but for all those women that went through this. So, And it affects a lot of people and it caused a lot of damage to those involved and it caused a lot of heartache. I'm Amelia Oberhart and I'm a journalist from Brisbane. This is Secrets We Keep, Shameless and Family. There's a generation of women in Australia that have been affected by a practice so cruel, it's hard to wrap your head around. In this episode, I'm trying to understand the stories of the mothers that were affected by a practice of historical forced adoption. A broad term used to describe the various illegal and unethical ways usually single mothers were coerced to giving up babies for adoption. For a long time, I'd wondered if my mum was one of those women. Given this practice was happening in the 1970s, particularly the early 70s when she was pregnant. And while it turned out this wasn't my mum's story, I knew that the stories of these women needed to be told. Di's a striking woman. She's eloquent and quiet, yet exudes confidence and intelligence. Okay, so tell me about your background, Di. So I was raised in New Zealand. My father was the Catholic. My mother was what we called in those days a non-Catholic. And um, when she was married, she had to sign a, um, a form to say that she would raise the children in the Catholic Church. You've heard a lot about the Catholics so far in this series because of my mum's own family and their connection to the church. So much so, I almost called this series Irish Catholic Guilt. The Catholic Church exerted influence wherever they were. And it's something Di remembers too. So we would go off to church. We went to Catholic school. Di had spent a lot of time as a kid on a farm with lots of animals, namely horses. She had big dreams of being a veterinary surgeon. She even started studying science at uni, but only lasted a year. She then moved to Canada to be a nanny for a family. 
Being the horsey girl she was, she'd ride horses on the next-door neighbour's property, which happened to be a stud farm. And then I met one of the sons and we ended up, you know, he was my first love and we ended up in a relationship. Their relationship went on for a year or so, but then things got tense with Di's host family. She ended up losing her visa status. Di then chose to move to Australia and stay there with her cousin. It was 1976, she was 22. She had no idea she was pregnant. Where were you when you found out you were pregnant? I I was in Sydney and I was working and I'm thinking, oh, I think I might be pregnant. I think I'm pregnant. Like, I'm just going, oh, God. And I was in denial. I was just in denial. Di had picked up a few odd jobs. That part, she remembers. But the period of the pregnancy, it's all a bit hazy. It was seven to eight months in, she even realised she was pregnant. Nobody guessed, you know, I was really tiny then and always wore overalls. One of Di's jobs at the time was for a Catholic doctor, looking after his horses. He hadn't even clocked that Di was pregnant until he realised she was in labour. He was a little surprised and then called an ambulance and I went in. And I don't remember anything about any of that at all. Di's memory gets foggy again, but she does make it to the hospital. There were a lot of people muttering all over the place. I had the baby, I didn't see him, didn't touch him, didn't cuddle hold him. They took him out. The only thing I can remember at that time was I'd given birth and I was freezing, freezing cold. I was lying on a, must have been, you know, stainless steel table and would have just had a hospital gown on, nothing else, and I just couldn't get warm. And I remember a doctor walked past, well, he would in a white coat, and he said, are you all right? And I was crying. And I can't remember that I shook my head or said no or something. He walked down the hallway and I heard him say, get back in there and look after her. And somebody, you know, came in and I was sitting in a pool of blood. There was no care. Di says she was taken to the maternity ward and somehow it was known that Di wasn't like the other mothers. The other thing I can remember is that people would come in to visit the new mothers and the babies were all around. And then they sort of whisper, whisper, and then turn and point at me. I was a Catholic girl gone bad. That was what was in my mind at the time. Di thinks the Catholic doctor she'd been working for might have been the one to tell the hospital staff about her situation. There was a lot of pressure. You can't do this. You know, you've got your whole life. What sort of, well, you can't look after a baby. You can't. All the things that you couldn't do. And then there was... I don't know if it happened in degrees. I don't know if they came and said, you know, the baby's sick or they presented me with papers and said, oh, no, well, you sign these, these these are your discharge papers. And then someone said, well, your baby has died, so you can leave now. Believing what she had been told, that her baby had died, she signed the discharge papers to leave the hospital or what she thought was discharge papers. So 
then I left, went back to work, and then, and just went, as you do, fung, fung, fung. Nobody talked about it. And I just basically got on with my life. Di buried her pain deep down for over 40 years. She didn't contact the father or tell a single soul. She just didn't see the point. She thought her baby had tragically died and she thought she had to get on with life. And so Di went about fulfilling her dreams of becoming a veterinary surgeon, which she did, and then got many more degrees on top of that. Di went on to marry someone else and had two more children. They also knew nothing about this first pregnancy. Then, around five years ago, in 2018, Di's at home, her youngest son in the lounge room, she's sitting on the sofa, waiting for the kettle to boil. And I just picked up my phone, as you do at the end of the day, and went, tung, 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 got this email. Person, you know, I didn't know who it was. <laughs> it's the opening, opening line was, he introduced himself, and then he said, I think you might be my mother. I didn't actually read anymore for a minute. <laughs> um, there was this overpowering, overpowering sense, I mean, not of joy, but of just displacement. Absolutely, it was just, it was like being in another universe. It was, it was, it was so powerful. And then I couldn't breathe, so I had to get up. And meanwhile, my son's in there, my youngest, saying, um, well, if you're making a cup of tea, can you make me a pot? And I'm going, yes, darling. <laughs> I couldn't, I could not breathe. I could not breathe. I put my phone down and made my son a cup of tea. Di hands the tea to her son. She cannot breathe. She cannot stop pacing. She cannot stop looking at this email on her phone. Eventually, she moves to her study. And I went onto the PC where I could have a bigger screen and I still couldn't breathe and I read it. And he went, this was where I was born on this date. I want you to know, you know, if you are my mother. And then he went down, I was raised by a wonderful family and a wonderful couple. I've had a wonderful, great life. I'm successful. I'm happily married and I have two children. You, oh, no, he said, you're a grandmother. And again, I'm just going, I, I just couldn't breathe. I'm going, and this is, you know, your grandson's name and your granddaughter. And at the time she was three. And then he said, I've sent a picture as well. And he said, we don't know where our daughter's curly hair comes from. Sitting down in her study, dies surrounded by bookshelves and plenty of photos of her as a kid. And I scrolled down, I saw this picture of my granddaughter and I looked over at a picture of me at about the same age. They were identical, we could have been twins. And I'm still sitting there going, like, you can't process all that. And then it was bringing up something that happened 40 years ago. 
And I'm trying to put it all together and then thinking, how can this be him talking to me when I was told that he hadn't survived, that he'd died? Those discharge papers died signed. They were actually adoption papers. This man was her son. After his birth, Di had been coerced into giving him up for adoption. What do I do? What do I do like this? And then I couldn't sleep that night. I'm still pacing and trying, just trying to breathe. Di eventually Googles support for parents of adopted children. She finds a post-adoption support service in Brisbane. She hopes they can help piece together what's just happened. They open at nine o'clock and I'm there going, I'll just wait here till nine o'clock and I can talk to somebody. And of course, that was the next morning I, I rang and just went just this vomit of, I don't know what's going on. Dies in good hands. She gets connected with a counsellor and the service helps her through the process. You can't stop asking questions. How can this happen? How can this be? They've gone through it before with, you know, parents, probably adopted parents with children that have been adopted, etc. It's um, So they lead you through it. They lead you through it. But it is the most horrific experience. The reality of where you are now and the reality of having to accept the reality of what really happened back then is very, very difficult. Very difficult. Di says her son always knew he was adopted. His parents had been up front with him from the start. It just took a while for him to be curious about who his mother was. Eventually, Di's son did a DNA test. From that, Di's son connected with his father's family. And then through further research, he found Di on the internet and he sent that email. Di's son was aged 42 at the time. A couple of days later, the support service helped Di craft a reply email to her son. It was something gentle, just confirming she could be his mother. Then he wrote back and said that when he heard that, his heart just sank. He just couldn't believe it. When, from the reply email, Mm -hmm. what happened after that? The next step for me was to tell my children, my other two children. Had this family dinner. I'm saying to them, okay, then family dinner, I've got something to tell you, right? And my son was standing there. He said, I know what it is. I know what you're going to tell us. And I went, I don't think so. (laughs) He goes, I know. I know. And I went, okay, well, what do you think it is? And he went, You've found God. I went, <laughs> you'll have to bleep this out. I went, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, and he said, well, because I, I had been really ill at about the same time. So we had dinner and I, I told them. And of course, I couldn't tell them without breaking down. And then they got up and my daughter gave me a big hug and then my son gave me a big hug. After Di had told her two other children... She organised to go and see her firstborn son. They met at Sydney Airport. Oh, it was, I just broke down. It was very powerful. Very powerful. Di continues to have a relationship with her son. Her family has expanded. 
Do they still um, talk to your older son now? Like, are they? Mm. Is it, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. They were up just a little while ago because my daughter had a, a baby. And so we had a big family lunch. They came up and, yeah. We catch up. We catch up. It does sound like a neat ending. Di's reunited with her son and their somewhat happy families. But that neat ending masks the injustice and the deceit Di's experienced. She's been trying to come to grips with that for the last five years. So I started to do a bit more reading and then found that it wasn't just me. And you would think sometimes that that would give you comfort, but I guess in some ways intellectually it does, but not really. Yes, you weren't the only one, but it's horrific to think that so many young girls went through this. It'd be better if I was just the only one. So they didn't have to go through the pain of what was caused to us. Speaking to Di had been truly heartbreaking. It was horrific to think she wasn't the only one this had happened to. I started thinking about all the other mothers that had gone through what Di did and how so many of them were still holding on to the shame and the stigma and all that secrecy. I knew I needed to talk to more mothers to find out more about what had happened and to bring those stories into the light. Which led me to Lily Arthur. Hello. Hi. How are you going? Good, thanks. Nice to meet you. Welcoming committee's here. Oh, hello. What's your name? I meet Lily at her house on the Gold Coast and I'm greeted at the door by her very excited pug. It's very, it's very, um, you know, unusual. It's puggy. <laughs> So, yeah, if we sort of um, just delve onto whatever you're happy to talk about about your story, just to get... Now aged in her 70s, Lily's the director of Origins. It's an organisation which supports people that have been separated by adoption. I'm probably a mother and a, an activist. Absolutely. Well, that's what I like to think I am. Yeah. <laughs> She's also written a memoir called Dirty Laundry, the relevance of which becomes clear very shortly. We start Lily's story in 1967, when she was abruptly shaken awake in bed one evening. The police walked into my bedroom in the middle of the night, found out that I was pregnant, arrested me. Took me to the South Brisbane Watch House. Spent the night there. What was your crime? The crime was that I was exposed to moral danger. But I didn't understand why. Moral danger? It's a truly medieval term. It was applied to young people who were in situations where they were breaching sexual morality, otherwise known as being sexually active. Lily was 16 and living with her boyfriend at the time. They'd only recently found out she was pregnant and they planned to keep the baby. Only the state didn't see this as a stable, loving relationship. Or did they agree that Lily could make her own decisions. In this backward world of 1960s Australia, Lily appeared before the children's court. And they committed me to Holy Cross at Woolwin, which was a Magdalene laundry. They put me there until my next appearance on remand, until they could find my mother. The Magdalene laundry was run by nuns, Catholic ones, of course, and was meant to provide protection and employment to unmarried mothers and the so-called fallen women of the time. 
working in the laundry, washing and ironing was a way for women to earn their keep and to teach discipline and a different way of life. When the authorities couldn't find Lily's parents, she was made a state ward, which means the state essentially becomes your guardian. At her next court appearance, it was decided she'd remain at Holy Cross for the duration of her pregnancy. Lily's boyfriend did visit. He bought forms for Lily to sign so they could get married, but nothing ever came of it. And years later, when I found him again and asked him what happened, he said when he went back to collect the papers, they wouldn't give them to him. The nun wouldn't give them to him. So, you know, that that was the end of my prospect of getting married. I didn't know any of this because I was kept isolated away from any sort of contact with anyone. Lily thought she'd be able to keep her baby. She even kept a crochet jacket and bonnet hidden from the nuns. Though, as her due date grew closer and closer, nobody told the now 17-year-old Lily what to expect during labour or what would happen after the baby was born. As the months passed on, no word, no somebody sitting me down saying, this is what's going to happen to you. I was completely fearful about having the child because I didn't know whether they were going to lock me up and what was going to happen to me or whatever. It was just like every day you lose a little bit of hope, whatever, and then you become like a zombie. You just lose all your fight because you know that you're trapped like a rat in a trap. When she went into labour, she was taken to hospital. They had me in a a sideways running position with my right leg pulled behind me and my left leg up on a stirrup. So I gave birth with my face pushed into the mattress, a nurse leaning on my shoulder, pushing me down, so I couldn't see what was going on. That's why they tore me apart. And that was my first experience, having having a child. Lily's baby was immediately taken from her. She didn't even get to see or hold her newborn. She was told she'd had a baby boy. After um, I had the baby and that, you know, they were sewing me up inside and out. And these two doctors are casually discussing the stitching that they're using. Oh, one says I'm using a herringbone, you know, stitch and blah, 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 and I'm like, well, You don't exist as a human being anymore. In the days after birth, Lily and many other women in her position were given drugs, sedatives and medication to stop their breast milk coming in. Under the influence of these drugs, Lily was told to sign a consent form to the adoption or, in Lily's words, the theft of her son. After signing the forms, Lily was finally allowed to take a glimpse at her son. They wheeled him up to a window in the nursery and they had him turned on his side so I could only see half his face. I had to hold up a card with baby McDonald on it, hold up that card and they brought him to the window and they let me see him for five minutes. And that, that, that very afternoon, they sent me back to that home and I was sitting in that laundry that afternoon folding pillowcases, still under the effects of the drugs that they gave me in in the hospital. About six weeks later, Lily left the home. She then moved to Sydney and a year later was married. It was in this marriage that Lily had her second child, a daughter. 
But what had happened with her son had cast a shadow over any relationship she would ever have with her daughter. When I took my child home, I handed her straight over to my mother-in-law and she more or less brought her up because I felt so disentitled to be a mother. And I must say, what they did to me took away my, my sense of motherhood and it pains me when I think about it that to appease somebody else, I never knew what it was like to bond with my own daughter. And I can honestly say to this day, I have never held my daughter and given her a kiss, never hugged her or anything else. And as a 50-year-old, she's never known what it's like for me to be able to love her. And that's, I blame all this, my relationship with her, on them taking away that love that I could have shown to my son because I was never able to show it to my daughter. In the late 90s, having never been to high school, Lily enrolled in a vocational college and she started studying community welfare. That had put her in contact with Origins, an organisation founded by mothers who'd lost their children to forced adoption. She was surrounded by women like her. And through Origins, Lily was encouraged to contact the government to find out the name given to her son when he was adopted. His name was Tim. And I started to think, well, I might see if I can try and find him. Through some painstaking research involving school admission lists and the electoral roll, Lily managed to find the right address for Tim. And then I turned up at his door later on that afternoon. How old was he then? He was about 32. I told his wife she was there. He was on his way back from work that I was looking for my son who was adopted, she just like, wow. You know, her eyes opened. She said, how did you find us? I said, it was extreme difficulty. Mm-hmm. I met him a couple of hours later and it was like, well. What was that feeling like? I don't know whether I was in a high state of anxiety or what the story was, but it was just like, the thing is, is though with the adoptees and the mothers, we lose a baby and we grieve over a baby. We grieve a lifetime over that lost baby. When you go into a reunion, like I was stunned when I saw my son. It was like, wow, you know, this is not what I expected. He's not what I expected. He's had a life where he developed a bond between himself and the person that adopted him. And my life was full of grief and loss and everything else that went along with it. So when you actually meet that adult child, He sort of had a life. There's no room, really, and I know this from my own perspective. I was on the back burner. He had a wife and children and friends and adoptive parents, and all I had was basically a hope that somewhere along the line I could reclaim my child. But it doesn't happen. It didn't happen to me. You know, there's too much water under the bridge, you know, like they get distracted by, you know, their current lives and everything else. So... Most of the women that I speak to are sitting on the back burner waiting for, you know, a Mother's Day card or a birthday card, which was my birthday yesterday, and no card in the mail. And you think, well, I can't push too hard because, after all, I did force my way into this person's life. I don't really have any entitlement to be saying this, that or the other, so I just step back. Lily and Di have been bonded by a trauma that is truly unimaginable. 
It is so hard to think this was happening only 40-odd years ago. I'm 37, so that's almost in my lifetime. It could have happened to someone I know. It brings me to an important point. You're probably listening and questioning, how does this fit in with the stolen generations? A permanent stain on our history, in which generations of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children were forcibly removed from their families. First Nations people were also affected by the forced adoption era you are hearing about, but the factors that led to the removal of children are different, namely the policy of assimilation and the process of colonisation and genocide that began over 200 years ago. You'll hear more about that in Episode 7 of the series. Lily was never getting back those years she was separated from her son, but she kept fighting back against the system that had wronged her. In 2004, she took the Queensland state government to court. Lily alleged that the state, her so-called guardian, had breached their duty to act in her best interest, and she was seeking compensation. But the claim was dismissed. The judge said Lily's memory was unreliable. I was well and truly punished as a child of the state that had the audacity to bring a court case against its abuser. So, you know, more or less it implied that I was some sort of delusional nutcase for thinking that there was a baby-stealing racket going on. We now have some idea of just how many women were affected by this practice. The decades of single women forced, shamed or coerced into giving up their babies for adoption. I'd been looking into the 1960s and 70s, but this story was even bigger than that. The era of forced adoption, it's a system that was allowed to operate from the 1940s right through to the 1980s. Official figures show around 150,000 adoptions happened in Australia between 1951 and 1975. It's impossible to know for certain how many of those babies were taken against their mother's will. But we do know it was a time when many believed single mothers were incapable of caring for their own children. If, for example, we take the peak of adoption, that was the early 70s, in one year alone, almost 10,000 babies were adopted. That's almost 200 babies adopted every single week. Compare that to today. In the most recent 12-month period we have official data for, just over 200 babies were adopted in one year. Knowing all this, it's hard to fathom. How did this happen? How was the system allowed to operate? And how did it stop? We were silenced for so long, we protected them by not speaking up, but we're not protecting them anymore. You know, the jig was up. That's next time on Secrets We Keep. If this episode has raised any issues for you, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. If you've been affected by forced adoption practices, call 1800 21 0313 to be connected with the Forced Adoption Support Service in your state or territory. Secrets We Keep, Shame, Lies and Family is created and hosted by me, Amelia Overhart. Producer, Jake Morecambe. Production assistance from Romy Scher, Bonnie Lavelle, Ben Sion Siebert and Tara Cassidy. 
fact-checking Bonnie Lavelle and Bencion Siebert. Sound design and mix by Niall Fernandez, executive producer Ellen Liebeter, with thanks to Claire Weaver and Jessica Wukinov. Natasha Jobson's our head of news operations and Melanie Withnell, head of news and information. Lily's book can be found at lilyarthur.com. You can keep listening to our next episode now. If you're enjoying the series, please leave a review or email us at secretsweekheap at sca.com.au.